Breadbox Media Programming is brought to you by Catholic retailers, business owners, and ministry leaders. Don't miss the Catholic Marketing Network Momentum 2019 event. Attend seminars that teach how to apply best business practices to any kind of business or ministry. Experience one-of-a-kind networking opportunities and browse the trade show exhibit hall full of Catholic resources and gifts from all over the world. Visit catholicmarketing.com trade show page to find out how you can be a part of this event that helps Catholics build personal and professional momentum. Introducing the redesigned catholicsingles.com, featuring new ways that put the spotlight on the person and their faith, not just a profile picture. For the past 20 years, faithful Catholics have used catholicsingles.com, and the reimagined catholicsingles.com website is ready to help single Catholics take the next step in sharing meaningful relationships with other faithful Catholics. Remember, catholicsingles.com, for faith, fellowship, and love. Welcome to the Dignity of Women, where we dig deep into the vocation and dignity of women in the church, in modern times, and as an answer to the call for a new evangelization. I'm your host, Kimberly Cook. Joining me today is Patrick Sullivan. Patrick is a lay Catholic evangelist, author, educator, and public speaker. He is the founder of Evango, a Catholic media organization based out of Canada. Patrick recently created a program on Catholic parenting called Me and My House and travels across North America leading parish missions. He lives in Barry's Bay, Ontario with his lovely wife and their eight children. Thank you so much for being with us today, Patrick. Oh, thanks for having me. This is so exciting. (laughs) So Patrick, you are a father of eight children, yet you were not given a positive fatherhood model to follow. As you said, the odds were against you. Tell us about your biological father, your stepfather, and how your mother's love gave you hope. Great question and a very intense way to start our, our time together. <laughs> I always, I always <laughs> Thanks start for that, with, Kimberly. <laughs> come out running. <laughs> That's great. Well, like many people in my generation, you know, the fatherhood question is a great hanging and disappointing question mark, unfortunately. And what that means is my only memory, essentially, of my biological father was as a three-year-old. And I remember stumbling out of my room late one night, holding my little teddy bear and seeing my mother speak with this strange looking man. He was a stranger to me. And I kind of kept that memory in my, you know, in the back of my childhood brain at one point. And years later, I would say to my mother, who is that guy? Why do I remember this night as standing out? What was so important about this night? Who was that guy? And she said, well, that, that was your father. And that was the night he left us all. Now, to give you a better snapshot of that individual, he basically, he didn't just leave. He threatened my mother and he said, if you ever try to look for me or ever try to get the government to make me pay child support or anything like that, if you try to make me be a dad to these kids, I promise you I will show up in the middle of the night one night and you will wake up and they will all be gone. So that's the kind of man that 
I was kind of my first experience of in this life. And um, I'm so glad to say that God not only stepped in in miraculous ways to help this little boy named Patrick, but uh, all my siblings as well. So my mother over the following years, she did a quite amazing things. We were, we were quite poor. We lived in very rough neighborhoods, um, a lot of fighting, a lot of, well, terrible memories, I guess. In, in reliving them, you say, well, from a safe place now. God did amazing things. But um, as I tell the story to other people, I realized I would never, ever want this for my children. Mm -hmm. When I was in kindergarten, my first day at school in kindergarten, can you imagine this? I was fighting a grade two. That's my first day of school. My first day of school is to figure out a way to wrestle this big kid to the ground so he would stop hitting me. Wow. That's how I spent my elementary school days from one day to the next, fighting, 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 to the point where I remember seeing my older brother, grade eight, getting into a car with his group of friends who, as a rite of passage, were going to steal it. Now, can you imagine this? You're in grade eight. You should be thinking, hopefully, of more important things, better things. Um, thanks be to God, my brother wasn't one of those who stole the car. They caught the car around the corner, and the boys who were in that car, their lives changed dramatically, but my brother was spared from that. So through all of this craziness, my mother used to have this yellow nightgown. Down the side, it said, Supermom. This woman in her life, this mother that God gave us, really held all the pieces together. I forget what superhero movie it is now, but there's the great scene. Or Captain America, it was Captain America, I don't know. But he's basically holding onto a building and he's holding onto a helicopter with the other hand. Basically, in a sense, saying holding two worlds together. Well, my mother was like that. She was the Captain America long before that movie came out. She was holding together lives and pieces of lives against all odds as we were growing up. So she still is, for me, one of my greatest heroes. And, um, you know, you cannot help but learn to respect women when that's the kind of example you've been given. So that very quickly, in a, in a very short way, is, is where I come from. I come from a very rough background where the, the notion of father was, was not just diminished, it was non-existent to the point where I had to ask about it. What is a father? You know, who is this guy? When your stepfather then entered the scene, he really mm -hmm. didn't do a justice to fatherhood either. Oh, gosh, no. Oh, gosh, no. It was, a unfortunately, again, a stereotypical scenario where a man enters in the life of a woman who already has children, and he seemed like such a great guy. He didn't have the greatest job, but he seemed like a happy man. He seemed like a hope-filled man, I should say. But as the ring went on the finger and the, you know, the relationship grew, we realized all that he was a very angry, angry individual. And that came out in many ways. But unfortunately, as it is for many mothers today, especially single mothers, they're trying to think, how can I protect my children from what's even worse out there? So growing up was not an easy thing. I remember as a young teenager saying to my stepfather one day, I remember it like it was yesterday. We were in a car driving together and I forget where he was taking me, but I turned to him and I remember I had to build up the courage for this, Kimberly. I had to say, why do you hate me so much? Mm. Could you imagine turning to a parental figure in life and just with a full conviction saying, I know this is true I, and I'm not trying to make you mad. I just want to understand why, like what's so wrong about me or wow. what's so bad about me or, you know, and in my mind, I tried for many years. I have the middle child syndrome, trying to make kids laugh, trying to be the peacemaker. I had tried. I tried to be likable. I tried to be lovable. And yet I must've been 13 years old. I knew this man didn't love me. It changed me. It, How did it he really respond to that? You know, it's it's funny. I, I thought he was going to explode in his not typical angry way, but he didn't. He actually looked confused. Okay. And I think that's very stereotypical as well. For a lot of people today in the culture, they're just confused. There's no plan. Right. You know, I'm going to be mean. I'm going to... <laughs> they're just confusion. And so he turned to me as he could, driving. He said, oh, I, I don't hate you. And then he just kind of trailed off. And you, you know? said you have an older brother. Do you also have a younger brother or do you have a younger sister? 
I have a younger brother and a younger sister. Okay, because I imagine that kind of environment for a girl would be even more damaging, especially feeling like a father figure in your life didn't like you, didn't yeah, love you. I exactly, mean, exactly. the effects and ramifications for both. It, it is very different. I can only imagine from the point of view of a daughter. And when I look at my own daughters and what kind of man do I want to be? Today, I, I walked up, I saw my, my little Hannah. She's nine years old now. And I just gave her a hug. And she looked at me like, and she said, what is that for? <laughs> you know, kind of accusatory, but enjoying it. What is that for? So, you know, I said to her, I just want you to know daddy loves you. And right. I just went on my merry way doing the rest of my work. And um, that is certainly something my sister did not get growing right. up. Uh, if anything, she had to fight that mental battle of, am I loved? Yes. Am I worth protecting? Am I worth dying for? That would have been the conversation going on in her mind. And I know that much because I certainly went through it myself. Right. And we know how critical that is for the faith walk and our relationship with God. Ultimately, when we have that feeling that we're not worthy of love and we're not worthy of redemption, Absolutely. we struggle to think of anything outside of this world that could possibly be good. And that's right. it could that's possibly right. bring us any more joy than the frivolous temporal joys that people grab gravitate towards, you know? That, that's true. That's true. So what was the near-death experience that changed you at age 17? <laughs> and how did that lead from no real childhood faith to pursuing a master's in divinity? I, I know, right? It's talk about a, just a complete about face, the metanoia, as we call it, real conversion. Well, I thought by the age of 17, as I guess 17-year-olds do, that I had all of life figured out. We had finally moved on from that the angry man, the stepfather, who I, for many years, still called dad. And as far as I could tell, we were in a safe place physically. My grades started to improve. I had a chance of going to university. So in my mind, things were going well for me. And then one day, I started to like a girl at school. And so you have to understand, from my point of view, even before that, I was like, I didn't want to bring a girl back to my house to see my family. It's too angry. It's too dangerous. It's all these things. So it's one thing to like someone and, you know, pass a note or something. It's another thing to say, you know, I wouldn't mind hanging out and there's a chance you might meet where I come from. Well, I started to like this girl and she pulled a fast one on me. We started talking about, you know, dreaming. You ever just dream with someone? Hopefully we all dream with our spouses. What could life still be like? What is our dream for our family? What is our dream? Beautiful things. Well, she and I started to dream together. What would the next couple of years be like? And I can't help but say it was a very positive thing. I was like, wow, we could be, I could smile. I could be happy. This is a good thing. Well, one day she said to me, I'm going away for a while. Just <laughs> full stop. I'm going away for a while. Thinking, well, prison isn't so bad. I <laughs> She was going on this thing I, I had never heard of before called a retreat, two-week-long retreat. So she was going on this thing, and I was just to patiently wait for her. There was no communication. Well, she showed up with a rosary and a Bible for me, and she expected me just to welcome them with open arms. This is fantastic. Great reading. It's going on my night shelf. These beads, I miss them. My response was so negative. She didn't even know how to respond, and she was a tough girl. I mean, she was a tough girl. When I said some very choice words to her, she didn't know how to respond. And she just basically left. And my whole world, when I was 17, started to fall apart. So I convinced myself that I could pretend like it didn't matter, that it didn't hurt. I convinced myself that I could just go on as if everything was okay. And I turned back to go to my apartment building. And I caught a, a glimpse of myself in the reflection. And there I saw this 17-year-old tough guy fighting since kindergarten, crying. And I realized how, how much it rattled me. Long story short, I went off to play basketball. And my mother, like a good mother, she, you know, be careful, don't hurt yourself, don't hurt other people. 
Well, I got to the basketball court, which was always full. It was always full of guys. And you have to understand where I come from. Street ball is not basketball. We call it street ball because you could throw an elbow and really hurt someone and it did not matter. It was just a matter of your venting. And that was life. Mm. So I got there fully expecting that kind of game and there was no one there. So not wanting to go back home to face my mother, to face my younger brother and sister at the time, I just started throwing that ball against the backboard as hard as I possibly could. And the thought occurred to me, I'm angry because this God came back into my life. And a memory came back to me that I hadn't thought of for years. It was when all the anger and all the yelling and all the fighting was happening as a little boy, I used to sit in the top bunk staring at the ceiling saying to someone I didn't know, Father, when will it stop? Hmm. Father, when will it stop? And that memory came flooding back to me. And you have to understand what that would do to someone like me at that time. So you weren't there when I needed you. And then you come back to ruin my life. Right. Right. So, I mean, just the explosion of anger in me was almost more than I could take. And I remember starting to curse up at the sky. I must have looked like a complete and utter lunatic. <laughs> I was cursing at the sky. And then suddenly out of nowhere, there was this massive storm. And I was convinced through and through that I was in for the storm of my life. I threw the ball against the backboard and the, a wind came out of nowhere and took it and threw it in a completely other direction towards this, the soccer field. And I was just so mad. I didn't think about how crazy that was. And I remember saying up at the sky to this God, this father, you think I'm going, I'm not done yet. So I stomped over to the soccer field and full drama. I was about to pick up the, the ball, which was right beside the soccer post. And I couldn't because the wind was so bad. I instinctively grabbed onto the soccer post. And then the wind just picked up so quickly, so violently. I grabbed on with two hands. Before I knew it, I was fully immersed, grabbing onto this pole, legs, arms, and the pole was swinging back and forth mm. with the wind. I was drenched in a matter of seconds. I heard the clubhouse behind me being torn apart. This will happen to all of us, Kimberly. It will. It, and it happened to me on that day. The moment you realize you have seconds to live. I really believe that, that the day will happen where we know there's a countdown clock. And it's not years. It's not months. It's seconds. And I heard God. And it blew me away. It was quite simply, Patrick, what do you want? You know, like, what, what a question for God to ask me, right? <laughs> like, what do I want? There's so many things that I want. But I heard it again repeated. What do you want? And in my heart of hearts, deep down inside, the only honest answer I had, which is really sad, I admit it, very sad, was that I want to try harder. I didn't know what it meant. I, I didn't know why I said it, but I want to try harder. And when I actually uttered that from the heart, everything slowed, the wind, the rain, the noise, everything. I let go of the pole cautiously, and there was a man standing there. And I was thinking, oh, I get my own angel. This is impressive. <laughs> <laughs> But it wasn't. It was a man in a parka yelling at me from maybe 10 feet away. I could barely hear him because the wind was still so loud. And he basically said, get your ball and follow me. I thought, where's my ball after something like that? It's probably, you know, another city. Well, I looked over and it was exactly where I'd left it, right beside the soccer post. So I thought, this is weird. Okay, why not? So I picked up a ball and I followed a stranger <laughs> right across the street. Never do this if there are kids listening. <laughs> Never follow a stranger. Well, I, I get to his house and there's these three teenagers just amazed, excited. This is, wow, that you were there and then you weren't. We could see you and then we couldn't. That was the craziest storm we've ever seen. And then our dad had to go ruin it all. And they could see my consternation. They could see the pain in my face, I suppose, the brokenness. And then they changed. It was, can we get you something to eat? Can we get you dry clothes? Can we do anything for you? And I said, I, I just want to go home. Mm -hmm. I, I think of today, all the people I'm trying with the Lord's help to evangelize, how those words alone ring true for me. I just want to go home. How many people could honestly say that? Right. I think many. Well, this, these people, they gave me a phone. I called home and my mother came to pick me up again, super mom. And she said, can I just ask 
what happened? <laughs> I said, I said, mom, I was in the tornado. Oh, it was a tornado. Tornado. Oh and she said, what tornado? There was no storm. There was nothing. And I was so shocked by it days after, weeks after. I was looking at news. Didn't the man who came to get you, didn't him and his kids see some kind of storm? They or? did. Absolutely. Okay. Now, this is another weird layer, Kimberly, because I asked around about the people who lived in that house. I was thinking maybe we should do something nice for them or whatever. Well, the, the common theme on the street was you don't go near that house. Why? Because it's a well-known drug house. Well-known. No one goes there. And by the way, playing at that ball court many years after that, I never saw that family again. So I don't know what the Lord was playing at, but he certainly played at getting my heart. Maybe it was that, your own angel. Oh, maybe it was a bunch of them. I, <laughs> I needed more than one. Well, that day when I got home, I looked in my sock drawer and I don't know why I did. And I pricked my finger on something. When I was in grade two, my teacher decided to help us children remember our first communion. So she wanted to outdo other teachers, I suppose. I don't know what got into her, but she helped us all make buttons. So we got to choose our own cardboard paper and we got to put a message on it. We got to draw a picture. So I chose this hideous looking yellow. I drew a terrible cross. I've never had a steady hand. And there was my message. It was a promise I made to God and to myself. And there in my grade two writing was, I will try harder. Wow. This is what God does to us when we open our heart from the depths and we're honest with everything we have. Give him whatever it is you can give it, but make it honest, make it real, make it you. He'll bless it and he'll give it back a hundredfold. So that's the storm very quickly told. That's why I'm here today doing all the crazy stuff that I do with our little team called Evango. Because years ago, I just wanted to go home. And God knew that I needed a father. And he would introduce me over a long, painful process to these people called fathers, priests. And it's there that I actually started to learn about this thing called faith and this different way of living that could actually be joyful. Right. That was actually my next question because I was so moved by that in your testimony. And thanks for sharing because... So many of us have that come to Jesus moment where mm -hmm. sometimes it's a near death experience. Sometimes it's something mystical and supernatural. Sometimes it's just rock bottom, you know, just yeah. a moment from our past that everything changed. And so exactly. many people can share that story, reverts, converts, whatever, and uh, just people that were away from the Lord and then went on a retreat and shackles fell off their eyes. The biggest struggle that most parents have, especially if they feel they didn't receive proper formation for parenthood is turning the educational theory into practical hands-on parenting. You said that you had been so affected by the failings of males in your life that you didn't expect to encounter true fatherhood for the first time through the priesthood. How cool is it that the priests you encountered at St. Augustine Seminary of Toronto, where you were studying, were able to help you enter into the physical fatherhood that you were about to encounter with your wife and your first child coming? How did you experience fatherhood as it is meant to be through those priests? Well, I think the first thing that really stood out to me, again, holding in your mind's eye, especially your listeners, here's this, this young boy who turned toward the father figure in his life and had to ask the question, why don't you love me? I found myself meeting these priests and wondering, I never asked, but really wondering, why do you love me? And that contrast, it does something to a person. Really, stranger after stranger after stranger, they all dress similarly. <laughs> they all pray similar prayers. And I'm coming from the outside going in. I don't understand this stuff, and yet you clearly love me. Right. To me, that was so groundbreaking, so shocking, that I felt more safe with a father figured in a priest than with people, men I'd lived with for years. That was earth-shattering. 
And what that meant practically was when it came time for me to choose what my next point of study would be, and it became Masters of Divinity, I was here with Gabriel. I was already married. We had a first child. And I was looking around for models. How do I be a good dad? Who do I look to? What, what, I mean, I can read a lot. It's good to read a lot. But practically, who's living it out around me? And I had to admit to myself, these men were doing things that were worth imitating. Right. And that's one thing I love about the Catholic faith is that the man who will become the best dad is still the one who be the best priest. You know, it's the same essential core there. And I had said to myself, you know, I could use this. This is so terrible, I guess. I'm stealing tricks and tactics <laughs> from the priests I know. I thought if I could help my baby Gabriel to know that I will always protect him, I'll always do my best to protect him. He should always feel safe with me. He should feel affection. I'm just glad that you're here to have that experience where someone is happy that you showed up. Mm -hmm. That was novel. I expected that from my mother. She's super mom, you know, <laughs> but here's a stranger who had met me and they're just happy that I'm here. Can I give that same experience to my child as their father? So I had gleaned a lot of things from them that I just kept putting into play, putting into practice and running with it. And I kept finding very fruitful things occurring. When it came time for a priest to be stern with me, oh, I remember one in particular was very stern with me and he held his line. He wasn't worried that I was gonna say, well, you're not kind enough or you don't love me. He knew that I knew of his love. Right. So he was firm in that so he could be firm in other things and help me to grow. I thought I could use that. I can use that as a dad. If my child knows how much I love them, then I can hold the line and I can help them to grow, form them, help them to discern and so on. I always found that it was a beautiful testimony that the best formation directors say that if you don't feel that you're called to fatherhood and you don't feel that you could be a good father, then you're not meant to be in the priesthood. And the That's same right. thing with being a sister. If you don't feel that your heart was formed for motherhood, then you are in the wrong place in the convent. And I'm sure some people <laughs> People are saying what I, how does that make I don't sense get yeah. this but it is true and i it think is. that is a lot of the trouble that we had in the 60s and 70s and that we see playing out now in the churches because that really wasn't upheld as it is now and i don't know if we really got it as a church during that period of time or maybe we lost it the mm -hmm. fact that you have to be formed for fatherhood or motherhood and see that in your very being if you're going to serve as a priest or a sister and if you're called to that vocation it is a vocation of love it is a vocation of fatherhood or motherhood you said exactly that you read every parenting guilt book out there and i think a lot of us <laughs> know what you're talking about i remember buying a book highlighting it like crazy and being so angry just throwing it into the trash and the next morning fishing it back out of the trash reading it a little bit more and then throwing it back in the trash it was like i had this love-hate relationship with this parenting yeah. book Obviously, there's a lot of frustration. You said you found nothing but frustration in these books. So what changed and what unlocked parenting for you? You obviously had a good example from the priests. You were studying divinity. You obviously started to be called on this journey to evangelize. And a lot of that was going to include parenting. So mm -hmm. how did you suddenly understand the pieces that many of us are still <laughs> struggling to understand? 
Well, part of the, the missing piece here is that there was a little bit of time where I was working as a teacher in the, the Catholic high schools. So I was being bounced around elementary high schools. So I had to take the theory of parenting, the things I was learning, gleaning from the books, as you say, pulling out of the trash cans. And I had to test them out because as teachers know, teaching is hard. And if you don't have control over your classrooms, things can go awry very quickly. So I immediately had to start putting these things into practice. Do these work? Maybe they do. Maybe I'm just a bad parent. Maybe I'm just a bad teacher. And I think we all go through that. That's part of the problem, right? Yes. We say it's not it's not the theory. It's got to be me. And <laughs> I think we all feel like that when you're sitting in a pew on Sunday and you're right behind a family that has double the amount of kids that you have. <laughs> and they're all sitting with hands folded, very nice. And you're half the size family is like standing on their heads and looking like you just picked them up from a zoo or something like that. And you're thinking, <laughs> it's, it's definitely it. us. You know, it's, it's, it's us. us. Well, I had to, I guess, with Kyla as well, this isn't a one-man show. This is me and Kyla doing our, our parenting journey together as spouses trying to follow the Lord. We had to test things out early on because we wanted peace and joy in our homes. Mm -hmm. I think all parents do. Maybe you're, you can correct me, Kimberly. Maybe you're going to say, no, actually, our dream for our family was that it would be a terrible mess. Pure chaos. And it... <laughs> we want anarchy and nothing. We want anarchy. anarchy we want rebellions. <laughs> Well, we didn't. We wanted very much how we pictured our, our lives together, full of peace, full of love, full of safety. And we thought there has to be a way to do this. So we just started testing things out right from go. Does this work or does this not work? So we kept the reading up. We kept the theorizing, but we immediately started to put things into practice. I would try it out at school. Did it work in the classroom? Yes. Well, maybe it'll work one-on-one -on -one with the child at home. Because at the end of the day, I think parents are tired. I think by a certain yeah. time of night, <laughs> maybe this is just us, I don't know. <laughs> but by a certain time of the evening, we're thinking, when was their bedtime again? <laughs> so we wanted to put things into play that we could say, isn't this great? They get to stay up another hour or we still have a little bit more time with them. I don't know about you, but we felt terribly guilty when those yes. hours would come upon us. And I can't believe I'm wishing my three-year-old would yes. take another nap. I think you're speaking to the very heart of parents right now. Everything that you're saying, and I feel like I'm just responding for the listener right now, <laughs> there's so much guilt and yes. there shouldn't be. You know there shouldn't be. It's like anything in your faith journey where you feel an immense amount of guilt and you know it's not meant to be there. That's and right. then you long for peace. I mean, when my yeah. husband and I talk about what we want in the home, what we want for our children, what we want in our marriage, it's always peace. That's peace. like the one thing because so much comes out of that and so much goodness can be drawn from that state of grace, really. Absolutely. And I think what you're saying here with I can't wait till it's bedtime and you find yourself guilty, but not really knowing how to get out of that cycle of wanting them to go to bed earlier or to do this or to do that. And you're kind of wishing them to be apart from you. And you realize that you're mm -hmm. not delighting in them. You're not like you said, oh, we get to have another hour with them. You realize that that's not at all what you're feeling. And you would like that to be the way that you feel. That's so right. how did that's you right. get there? Well, and this is what I love about what our little team has done. We've basically taken all the best habits and all the worst habits of parenting. And we've said to the viewer, because this is a, a video project we've completed, 
if you did this one thing tonight, it'll change your family life for the better. Right. Meaning you'll get that much closer to having a peaceful home. You'll get that much closer to having a joyful home. Try it out. If it works, keep it. If it doesn't work, move on to the next thing. So that's what we did. We looked around and we started collecting tips from parents over here, tips from parents over there and testing it out in a real rowdy. I mean, we have five boys now, three girls. We, <laughs> just to give you a little backstory there, we had our first boy and he was a calm little boy. Oh, this is great. And then we had twins. <laughs> and we call those the black hole years. We have to fill in each other's memory because we're just not sure how it happened or how do we survive? That I think sums it up for a lot of parents. So what we're trying to do is give them little tips and we want to fast track. So that's how we got here was talking together, constantly reviewing it. Did it work? Well, did you try this? No, I didn't try that. Maybe this one needs to be kept up for a week. Maybe let's try it. And slowly our parenting journey became something of a fun thing, like a little adventure. And we've just amassed a whole bunch of golden nuggets that really we've taken from great parents everywhere. So you have the theory, but you also have real parents. Kyle and I are real people right. who are doing this. Even so, our little Abigail is turning well, three months shortly. Our oldest now is turning just 13 years old. So there's our gambit of experience. And we're just brutally honest with you. This works. You should try this. It's, it actually works really well. Or, you know what? Get rid of that habit because we found it gets in the way of that piece that we talked about. And so, you're very yeah. kind because I feel like our parents do want us to have to go through the same black hole years that they went through <laughs> to get yeah. to the other side so that we can just appreciate them that much more. <laughs> you know, a lot of people just say after they had kids that they call their parents and be like, Thank you. And so I should say Patrick created a program called Me and My House. It is to help meet the real need in the church of discipling parents and future parents into building a peaceful home that can be considered a sanctuary. And most of us remember thinking with the best of intentions how we would run our home before we had kids. And now often chaos ensues and our home runs us. You spoke a lot about what habits need to change and small things that we can step towards each day so that it's not too overwhelming. What would you say are some of the biggest habits that you've seen across the board that parents really need to just lose? <laughs> oh, there are so many. There, there are so many. Is there going to uh, be anything left to us as parents? Are we just going to be the yeah, shells of no, our former selves? <laughs> no, there's going to be lots of great habits to, to put in there. One uh, that just jumping out at me, again, there are many that we talk about, is we've put up with, I know in our house, for a long time, we accepted that kids get bored. And we accepted it as almost a rite of passage. And that means because they're bored, they can now go on to do devious things. So <laughs> I saw this in the school systems. I saw this in our own houses. Our boys were getting older. Dad, I'm bored. Well, I'm in the middle of working or I'm in the middle of doing something. I can't alleviate your boredom. Ah, oh, and then grumpiness ensues and it's this whole problem. Here's something you can actually do to change that whole dynamic. We instituted, basically, it's quite simple. You have to pick up a hobby. And it seems like a silly little thing. Of course, we know about hobbies. No, 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 no. You make it a house rule. And we talk about house rules and character rules in this program, what that means. You basically say everyone in this house has a hobby. So the moment they're done doing what they need to do, they can go to this extracurricular thing, pick it up, learn, pick it up, grow, pick it up, explore, mm -hmm. and bring it back to the family and say, hey, look what I've done. And we found that by doing this, just this hobby thing, something we've known in families for millennia, I'm sure, 
we found that that boredom question, it doesn't arise at all. So after many years with Gabriel getting older, we have every child do three hobbies they always return to when we buy gifts for each other. It's always hobby related gifts. Mm. And we've seen our kids grow and just get so dynamic their personalities because they're expressing themselves in all these different kinds of media. And that I am bored statement hasn't (laughs) arisen from the dead for I don't even know how long. If we can nip that boredom question in the bottom, you are saving yourself a heap of pain and frustration. Because again, back to the guilt, Kimberly, when my child says I'm bored, we tend to think, well, I'm not playing with you enough. Yes. yes. I'm not giving you, I'm not meeting your needs. I'm not present enough. We start going through this whole cycle when point of fact, they just need an outlet that then they can bring back to the family and say, look what I have done. And again, back to affection. Wow, this is quite amazing. So to give you a couple of real life examples, here's my Benjamin. He's 11 now with his twin brother and he loves, get this, he loves crocheting. Oh, wow. Loves crocheting. It astounds (laughs) me the kind of things he loves doing. Yeah, try it. You like using your hands? Try it out. Now you like that, do something different. That's a quiet activity, a quiet hobby. What other hobby could you pick up that's loud and maybe involves other people? Chess, dad. I'm going to do chess because I like to argue with my his twin brother, Tobias, <laughs> over the chess board. That's fantastic. Make that your next one. So what's happening, they start accumulating these different ways to express themselves and they love bringing it back to the family to, to applaud them, to say, wow, right. can you show us that again? Can you teach me that? Nothing's more humbling than going to my 11-year-old saying, I don't know Learn how to crochet a sock. How did you do that? Or, or chess, yeah. <laughs> But it's a lot of fun. So that's a big one I, I always bring up. And it seems like that one, I have been at different conferences. I've had parents come up to me and say, thank you, thank you, thank you. I'm using that with my teenagers when I get home. Well, we always compare everything we do to Little House on the Prairie. And that <laughs> really makes us feel like even worse parents because we're like, well, they never got bored. They were never. you know, hunting yes. their own supper at the age of six. What are you doing with your life? You know, that's right. gosh, let's. You know, Ma never raised her voice. And... Well, I can tell you, we Sullivans raise our voices all the time. Okay. And you're not <laughs> you're not going to encounter the the perfect quiet couple here. We have problems. We're, we're real. We have to apologize to our own kids. Mm-hmm. Yes. Uh, one of the best habits we've learned over the years is to, at night time, when we bless our kids before they go to sleep, say, how can daddy be a better daddy tomorrow? Yes. What a dangerous question that is, <laughs> right? <laughs> Especially well, with I eight kids. Sugar. That's like eight <laughs> hours. <laughs> That's right. But you know what I found time and time again? is that they actually have real feedback that affects their life. I used to worry it would be like, well, get me more toys or let me stay up much later. It was always something simple and profound. Well, daddy, would you mind not yelling so much? I'd almost rather have the toys because those, I mean, it's true. They're so profound and they cut to your core. I mean, they're they're so innocent and so direct. Can I just buy you a toy or something? (laughs) (laughs) You're talking about a virtue here. I mean, that's expensive. (laughs) No, you're absolutely right about that. Those are wonderful pearls of wisdom from what you've created. I'm so glad that you're doing what you're doing with me and my house program. You're also preparing to release a Bible study called War Against Women, beginning with Revelation and the enmity of Mary and the devil. Now, many people today and throughout history have not believed in the reality of the devil and his constant temptation throughout history. But you say because Satan could not defeat Mary at the end of time and when she bore Christ, he had to go back to the beginning of time to defeat women. What is the greatest battle of Satan and women today? Oh, I love the way you put that. That's awesome. Wonderful. (laughs) What is the greatest battle? You know what it is? It's that women have stopped believing in the power of their own holiness. Mm. It really is. Fulton Sheen here. Oh, well, he's amazing. (laughs) I'm just saying what's coming on my heart here. 
the fact of the matter is, when in studying Mary throughout the, the threads through scriptures, we call them from the Old Testament right through the New, they knew this. Women knew this, that I have something in me that the world needs. I have something in me that will bring about the Mashiach, the Messiah. And if I give up on it, generations will change for the worse. So what do women need to learn today about, I mean, if you're going to the, the heart of it, believe, believe, believe that our God wants you to be holy, empowers you to be holy. And through that, you can change the course of history, not just our, our own little nucleus, our own little family or our own little community. Women have the ability to be that anchor. I was talking to a mother the other day and she was saying, you know, I, I don't feel like I'm doing anything. I feel like I'm just fighting all the wrong things in the life of my child. You know, I don't get much time to talk about the positive stuff. And I said, hold on a second here. So you're telling me that with one hand, you're hugging a child and the other hand, you're holding back the dam. Do you realize how awesome that is? <laughs> And she just looked at me stunned and she started to tear up. And I thought the women of our generation need to hear this. Yes. They need to hear that they there's a seed in them that is meant to blossom. We men, we have different thing going. We too need to be holy. It takes a different form. But studying the thread of Mary through the Old to the New Testament, you're going to see some powerful things come forward. And it's that. I think that in a nugget is, is it. Women are called to be holy and there's a gift there that we all need. Right. Absolutely. Amen to that. That was really well said. And I think that there's probably so much more in the thread, as you call it, in that scripture study of Mary and Eve and Revelation and Satan's attack, starting from Revelation and then working back through time. And I think that, like you were saying in your example of how women don't realize their own power, even in their motherhood, even in their own home. And this is the devil's work to make you feel like you're unimportant or what you're doing does not have a purpose or a power. It's not mm -hmm. building up the family, your spouse or your children in any way. And I think you said it wonderfully with hugging your child with one arm and then holding back the dam with the other. It's simple. It might not seem that way. You might not feel like you need to start handing out the superhero shirts to all the moms around you or whatever, but... <laughs> That's ultimately what, what it is, if you see it clearly through the eyes of Christ. It, it really is. I'm thinking back to the Old Testament. Here's Hannah, you know, she's pleading with the Lord, give me a child. Was, was she just asking for a little task? No, she gave us the great prophet who would literally change the course of human history. Think of this unknown woman, Mary of Nazareth. She has a child. Is that just a small thing, her own little domestic church? This domestic church will become the great church that changes all of human history. I say to my wife, Kyla, all the time, I wish you could step out of yourself for a bit and kind to get that 3,000 foot view both spatially but also over time and you'd be able to see what great work you're doing today because we can get lost in the yes. details and Kyla reminds me of that all, all the time she's like I, but I like the details I like <laughs> knowing that things have been done I can check off the boxes well that's great that's wonderful and it's needed and yet if you don't step outside and see what wonderful work God is doing through you you're gonna miss it you're gonna miss something powerful and that's why I prefer to talk about the, the role of women today just the powerhouse that is hidden under every roof if they only had the eyes to see it. You're not talking about just, you know, holding back a culture or holding back the dam. We are the flood. We are the waters pushing out from every hearth. And that can change everything. Oh, I get too excited about this. Sorry, Kimberly. I just know <laughs> that I'm excited. And I think the last question that I want to ask you will help you continue to be excited about that because <laughs> <Good. Okay. laughs> I think it's important 
important. And you as a father, as this evangelist, you have your group, your mission, Evango. You are spreading this word and building up families and studying scripture. But you also came from a past where you didn't have a strong fatherhood image or model to follow. What do you want your daughters and all women to know about the gift of their nature and how it was written into the divine plan, especially speaking to the wounded heart of women who are coming from similar past? Maybe they still have not heard those healing words of fatherhood or they still struggle with that. Maybe they already are married and mothers, but still struggling and the need to hear those words of wisdom and those words of healing. What would you you want them to know? I'll never tire of saying it. I'll continue to say it to my daughters and to any woman who will listen. Every woman on the planet is not only worth fighting for, but worth dying for. And again, I'll say it, my daughters who are waiting for me upstairs for their bedtime story, you are worth fighting for. My daughter, you are worth dying for. Jesus has taught us this. We have to own it. We have to know it. It is true. And I think every woman on the planet needs to hear that. If not for me, someone, someone in their life, father figure, whoever, say it loud, say it clear, say it often. You are worth dying for. Amen. I love that. Thank you so much, Patrick Sullivan. Tell all of our listeners where they can find you and where they can find out more about me and my house parents in the practical day-to-day living that out, having a joyful and peaceful home, go to evango.net forward slash house. Thank you so much for being with us today, Patrick Sullivan. Thank you for having me. Hello, this is international Catholic singer Anna Nuzzo, inviting you to join me and Father Dan Cambra of the Marian Fathers on a select international tour's Divine Mercy pilgrimage to Poland and the Czech Republic. It takes place in September of 2019, and we would love for you to join us. For more information, go to my website, AnnaNuzzo.com. Thank you, and God bless. Breadbox Media Programming is brought to you by Jack Kane Ford. Find your next Ford Tough vehicle at KaneFord.com.